and welcome everyone. Happy spooky Halloween. Beautiful breezy fall day today. Hope you are guys are getting out and enjoying a little bit of uh, Halloween during this pandemic, socially distancing and all that. This is me, mom and dad. We are gaining viewers all the time. Those of you who are, who are new to our podcast, my name is Tia. My, mo my mom's name is Gloria and my dad is Harold. This podcast started out for our new viewers. We started sharing this podcast with my, when my dad got diagnosed with Parkinson's and we're always sharing new things that we learned with my dad living a fruitful life with Parkinson's. We're so thankful that he, he truly is living a fruitful life with exercise and a little bit of watching his diet, and we share what we've learned. But we have a special treat on this podcast. My dear friend Tracy Brown, she's on Twitter. Um, she's, go she's a singer, uh, actress, and a beautiful writer. And she's going to share for a Halloween a spooky, beautiful, thriller-type Halloween story for Halloween. And she has the most beautiful British accent. So it's a treat. So I'm going to get to Tracy and I'll come back. I won't share any recipes on this episode because I'm letting her do her thing. Tracy and I met on cruise ships years, years upon years upon years ago. Um, it's so sad that there's no cruise ships right now, but won't get into that, right? Hopefully they, there's no hope. They will be back cruise ships and we met on cruise ships and we've been friends forever and um she's going to share a beautiful story for those of you who love spooky halloween type thriller type stories i will be back here is my friend tracy brown happy halloween the empty schoolroom by pamela hansford johnson my mother and father were in India, and I had no aunts, uncles, or cousins with whom I could spend my holidays. So I stayed behind in the drab and echoing school to amuse myself as best I could. My only companions the housekeeper, the maid, and Mademoiselle Fournier, who also had nowhere else to go. Our school was just outside the village of Belancé, which is in the north of France. It was a tall, narrow house set upon the top of a hill, bare save the great sweep of beech trees sheltering the long carriage drive. As I look back some 27 years to my life there, it seems to me that the sun never shone, that the grass was always dun-coloured beneath a dun-coloured sky, and that the vast spaces of the lawns were broken perpetually by the scurry of dry brown leaves licked along by a small, bitter wind. This inaccurate impression remains with me because I suppose I was never happy at Belancé. There were 20 or 30 other girls there, French, German or Swiss. I was the only English girl among them. Madame du Vallon, the headmistress, did not love my nation. She could not forget that she had been born in 1815 the year of defeat. With Mademoiselle Marie, 
the young assistant teacher, I was a little more at ease, for she, even if she didn't care for me, had too volatile a nature not to smile and laugh sometimes, even for the benefit of those who are not her favourite. Mademoiselle Fournier was a dependent cousin of our headmistress. She was in her late fifties, a little woman, dry as a winter twig, her face very tight, small and wary, under a wig of coarse yellow hair. To pay for her board and lodging, she taught deportment. In her youth, she had been at the court of the Tsar, and it was said that at sixteen years of age she was betrothed to a Russian nobleman. There was some sort of mystery here about which all the girls were curious. Louise de Chausson said that her mother had told her the story. How the nobleman, on the eve of his wedding, had shot himself through the head, having received word that certain speculations in which he had for many years been involved had come to light, and that his arrest was imminent. And from that day, Louise whispered, her prominent eyes gleaming in the candlelight. She began to wither and wither and wither away till all her beauty was gone. Yes, I can see Louise now, kneeling upon her bed at the end of the vast dormitory, her thick plait hanging down over her nightgown, the little cross with the turquoise glittering at her beautiful and grainy throat. The others believed the story implicitly, except the piece about Mademoiselle Fournier's lost beauty. That they could not stomach. No, she was as ugly as a monkey and had always been so. For myself, I just believed in the nobleman, believed in the beauty. I have always had a curious faculty for stripping age away from a face, recognising the structure of the bone and the original texture of the skin, beneath the disguisings of blotch, red vein, and loosened flesh. When I looked at Mademoiselle Fournier, I saw that the pinched and veinous nose had once been delicate and fine, that the sunken eyes had once been almond-shaped and blue, that the small, loose mouth had once pouted charmingly and opened upon romantic words. Why did I not believe in the nobleman? For no better reason than a distrust of Louise's information on any conceivable point. She was a terrible teller of falsehoods. I was 17 years old when I spent my last vacation at Balancay, and knowing that my parents were to return to Europe in the following spring, I watched the departure of the other girls with a heart not quite as heavy as was usual upon these occasions. In six months' time, I, too, would be welcomed and loved, have adventures to relate and hopes upon which to feed. I waved to them from a dormer window as they rattle away in Fierre and Barouche down the drive between the beech trees, sired and damed, uncled and aunted, their boxes styled high, and their voices high as the treetops. They had never before seemed to me a particularly attractive group of girls. That is, not in the mass. There was, of course, Hélène de Cursy with her great olive eyes, Madeleine Millet, whose pale red hair hung to her knees. But in the cluster, they had no particular charm. That day, however, 
as in new bonnets flowered and feathered and gauze, they passed from sight down the narrowing file of beeches. I thought them all as beautiful as princesses and as princesses fortunate. The nip in the air of a grey June made their cheeks rose red, their eyes bright as the eyes of desirable ladies in ballrooms. The last carriage disappeared, the last sound died away. I turned from the window and went down the echoing stairs, flight after flight, to the salle à manger, where my luncheon awaited me. I ate alone. Mademoiselle Fournier took her meals in her own room upon the second floor, reading as she ate, crumbs falling from her lips onto the page. Tonight, she and I, in the pattern of all holiday nights, would sit together for a while in the drawing room before retiring. You don't make much of a meal, I must say, Marie, the maid, rebuked me as she cleared the plate. You can't afford to grow thinner, mademoiselle, you'll snap in two. She brought me some cherries, which I would not eat then, but preferred to take out with me in the garden. I'll wrap them up for you. No, you can't put them in your handkerchief like that, you'll stain it. She chattered to me for a while, in her good nature trying to ease my loneliness. Marie, at least, had relations in the village with whom she sometimes spent her evenings. What are you going to do with yourself, eh? Read your eyes out as usual. I shall walk this afternoon unless I find it too chilly. You'll find it raining, said Marie, cocking a calculating eye towards the high windows. In an hour. No, less. In half an hour. She busied herself wrapping up my cherries, which she handed to me in a neat parcel with a firm finger loop or string. If it's wet, you can play the piano. You've forgotten, I said. We have none now, or shan't have till they send a new one. Madame du Vallon had recently sold the old instrument, ugly and tinny, and with the money from the sale, plus some money raised by parents' subscription, had bought a grand pianoforte from Monsieur Aubry. The mayor, whose eldest daughter, musical one, had lately died. You can play on Mademoiselle Fournier, said Marie. She won't mind. You go ask her. What is there another piano in the school? I was amazed. I had been at Belance for seven years and had fancied no corner of the building unknown to me. Ah, ha, 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 said Marie triumphantly. There are still things you don't know, eh? You don't have to do the housework, or you'd be wiser. But where is it? In the empty schoolroom. I laughed at her, but they're all empty now. Whatever do you mean? This one at the top, she said impatiently, the one up the little flight of four stairs. But there's the lumber room. There's lumber in it, but it was a schoolroom once. It was when my aunt worked here. Piano's up there still, but she never plays it now. Marie jerked her head skyward to indicate Mademoiselle Fournier upstairs. I was fascinated by this information. We girls had never entered the lumber room because no attraction had been attached to it. To us it was simply a small, grimy door in the attic, locked, we imagined, as we had never seen anyone go in and out. All we knew was that old books, releases, crates of unwanted china were sometimes stacked up there out of the way. I failed to make my point quite clear. I must try again. 
There was no mystery whatsoever attaching to this room, which is the reason why no girl had ever tried the handle. Door girls are curious and roaming creatures. How better can they be kept from a certain path than by the positive assurance that it is a cruiser? Dismissing Marie, I determined to go and seek permission from Mademoiselle Cornier to pay upon her pianoforte. Since the departure of the old one, I had missed my music lessons and above all my practicing. Most of the girls were delighted to be saved a labour which to me, though I was an indifferent performer, had never been anything but a pleasure. Mademoiselle had finished her meal and was just coming out upon the landing as I ran up the stairs to find her. I made my request. She looked at me. She told me about the instrument. Marie. She was silent. Her brows moved up and down, moving the wig as they did so. It was a familiar trick with her when she was puzzled or annoyed. At last she said without expression, No, you may not go up there. And pushing me, hurried on downstairs. At the turn of the staircase, however, she stopped and looked up. Her whole face was working with some unrecognisable emotion and her cheeks were burning red. Is there no place one can keep to oneself? She cried at me furiously and ducking her head, ran on. When we sat that evening in the drawing room in our chairs turned to the fireless grate, she made no reference to the little scene of that afternoon. I thought she was perhaps sorry for having spoken so sharply, for she asked me a few personal questions of a kindly nature, and just before bedtime brought out a tin box of sugared almonds, which she shared with me. She rose a little before I did, leaving me to retire when I chose. I stayed perhaps half an hour in that vast pale room with its moss-coloured draperies and its two tarnished chandeliers hanging a great way below the ceiling. Then I took up my candle and went to bed. Now, I must insist that I was a docile girl, a little sullen, perhaps, out of an unrealised resentment against my parents for, as I thought, deserting me, but obedient. I had never had a bad conduct report from any of our teachers. It is important that this fact be realised, so that the reader will know that what I did was not of my own free will. I could not sleep. I lay open-eyed until my candle burned halfway down and the moon shifted round into the window pane, weaving the golden light with its own silver blue. I had no thought of any importance, small picture than the day's humdrum events flashed across my brain. I saw the neatly looped parcel of cherries the current stain at the hem of Marie's apron, the starched blue bird on the bonnet of Louise de Chanson, who had left Belancé to marry an elderly and not very rich nobleman of Provence. I saw the leaves scurrying over the grey lawns, saw a woodpecker rapping at the trunk of a tree behind the house. What I did not see was the face of Mademoiselle Giornier, upturned from the stairway. She never entered my thoughts at all. And so it is very strange that just before dawn, I rose up, put on my dressing gown and thought about the room 
until I had found a pair of gloves my father had had made for me in India. Fawn-coloured, curiously stitched in gold and dark green thread. These I took up, left the room, and made my way silently up through the quiet house until I came to the door of the lumber room, or, as Marie had called it, the empty schoolroom. I paused with my hand upon the latch and listened. There was no sound except the impalpable breathing of the night, a compound, perhaps, of the breathings of all who sleep, or perhaps of the movement of the moon through the gathered clouds. I raised the latch gently and stepped within the room, closing the door softly behind me. The chamber ran halfway across the length of the house at the rear of it and was lighted by a ceiling window, through which the moon rays poured lavishly down. It was still a schoolroom, despite the lumber stacked at the far end, the upright piano standing just behind the door. Facing me was a dais, on which stood a table and a chair. Before the dais were row upon row of desks, with benches behind. Everything was very dusty. With my finger I wrote dust upon the teacher's table, then scuffed the word out again. I went to the pianoforte. Behind the lattice work was a ruching of torn red silk. The candle stumps in the sconces were red also. On the rack stood a piece of music, a Chopin nocturne, simplified for beginners. Gingerly, I raised the lid and a muffled spider ran across the keys, flopped on hasty thread to the floor and ran away. The underside of the lid was completely netted by his silk. Broken strands waved in the disturbed air and over the discarded keys. As a rule, I am afraid of spiders. That night I was not afraid. I laid my gloves on the keyboard, then closed the piano lid upon them. I was ready to go downstairs. I took one glance about the room and for a moment thought I saw a shadowy form sitting upon one of the back benches, a form that seemed to weep. Then the impression passed away and there was only the moonlight painting the room with its majesty. I went out, latching the door and crept back to my bed where in the first colouring of dawn, I fell asleep. And in the afternoon, worked up my petit pont upon the terrace. At tea time, an invitation came for me. The mayor, Monsieur Henri, wrote to Mademoiselle Fournier, saying he believed there was a young lady left behind at school for the holidays. And if she would care to dine at his house upon the following evening, would be a great pleasure to him and his two young daughters. We are not a gay house these days, he wrote, but if the young lady cares for books and flowers, there are a great number of both in my library and conservatory. Shall I go? I asked her. But of course. It really is a great honour for you. Do you know who the mayor's mother was before her marriage? She was an Uthez. Yes. And when she married Monsieur Roy's father, very handsome man. Her family cut off with nothing at all and never spoke to her again. But they were very happy. You must wear your best gown and your white hat. 
Take the gown to Marie and she will iron it for you. The day upon which I was to visit Monsieur Roy was sunless and chilly. Plainly, the blue dress that Marie had so beautifully spotted and pressed would not do at all. I had, however, a fawn-coloured merino gown, plain but stylish, with which my brown straw hat would look very well. Mademoiselle Fournier left the house at four o'clock to take tea with the village priest. She looked me over before she went, pinched my dress, tweaked it, pulled out the folds, and told me to sit quite still until the mayor's carriage came for me at half past six. It's like a mouse, mind. We will spoil the effect. Remember, Monsieur Henri is not nobody. She said suddenly, where are your gloves? I had forgotten them. Forgetting the very things that make a lady look like a lady. Go and fetch him at once. Marie? The maid came in. Marie, see Mademoiselle's gloves are nice, and brush her down once more, just as you see the carriage into the drive. I mustn't wait. Well, Maud, wish you a pleasant evening. Don't forget you must be a credit to us. When she had gone, Marie asked for my gloves. You better wear your brown ones with that hat, mademoiselle. Oh, I exclaimed, I can't. I lost one of them on the expedition last week. Your black then? They won't do. They look dreadful with this gown and hat. I know. I have a beautiful Indian pair that will match my dress exactly. I'll go and look for them. I searched. The reader must believe that I hunted all over my room for them anxiously, one eye upon the clock, though it was not yet twenty minutes past four. Chagrin, really upset at the thought of having my toilette ruined, I sat down upon the edge of the bed and began to cry a little. Tears came very easily to me in those lost and desolate days. From high up in the house, I heard a few notes of the piano. The melody of the Chopin nocturne played fumblingly in the treble, and I thought at once, of course, the gloves are bare where I hid them. The body warns us of evil before the senses are half awakened. I knew no fear as I ran lightly up towards the empty schoolroom. Yet, as I reached the door, I felt a wave of heat engulf me, and knew a sick, nauseous stirring within my body. The notes, audible only to my ear, not to Marie's, for even at that moment I could hear her calling out some inquiry or gossip to the housekeeper, ceased. I lifted the latch and looked in. The room appeared to be deserted, yet I could see a presence within it, and know its distress. I peeped behind the door. At the piano sat a terribly ugly, thin young girl in a dunce's cap. She was half turned towards me, I saw her pig-like profile with protruding teeth, a spurt of sandy eyelash. She wore a holland dress in the fashion of twenty years ago, and lean yellow streamers of hair fell down over her back from beneath the paper cone. Her hands, still resting on the fouled keyboard, were meshed about with the spider's web. The 
你是美满的音阶调。I made a movement towards the girl. She swiveled sharply and looked me full in the face. Her eyes were all white, red-rimmed, but tearless. To get my gloves, I must risk touching her. We looked at each other, she and I, and her head sunk low between her hunching shoulders. Somehow, I must speak to her friend in me, disarmed her while I gained my objective. Was it you, Play? I asked. No answer. I closed my eyes, stretching out my hands as if in a game of blind man's buff. I sought for the keyboard. I have never heard you before. I said. I touched something. I did not know whether it was a glove or her dead hand. Have you been learning long? I said. I opened my eyes. She was gone. I took my gloves, dusted off the webs, and ran. Ran so fast down the well of the stairs that on the last flight I stumbled and fell breathless into Marie's arms. Oh, I've had a fright! I have had a fright! She led me into the drawing room, made me lie down, brought me a glass of wine. What is it, Mademoiselle? Shall I fetch the housekeeper? What's happened? But the first sip of wine had made me wary. I thought I saw someone hiding in my bedroom. A man, perhaps a thief. At this, the house was roused. Marie, the housekeeper, and the gardener, who had not yet finished his work, searched every room, the llama room too, I think, but found nothing. I was scolded, petted, dosed, and Marie insisted, when the housekeeper was out of the way, on a soupçon rouge on my cheeks because she said. I could not upset Monsieur Le Maire by looking like a dead body. He, poor man, having so recently have had death in his house. I recovered myself sufficiently to climb into the carriage when it came, to comport myself decently on the drive, and to greet the mayor and his two daughters with dignity. Dinner, however, was a nightmare. My mind was so full of the horror I had seen that I could not eat. Indeed, I could barely force my trembling hand to carry the fork to my lips. The mayor's daughters were only children, eleven and thirteen years old. At eight o'clock, he bade them say good night to me and prepare for bed. When they had left us, I told him I thought I had stayed long enough, but with a very grave look, he placed his hand upon my arm and pressed me gently back into my chair. My dear young lady, he said. I know your history. I know you are lonely and unhappy in France without your parents. I also know that you have suffered some violent shocks. Will you tell me about it and let me help you? The relief of his words, of his kind and wise gaze, was too much for me. For the first time in seven years, I felt fathered and in haven. I broke down and cried tempestuously, and he did not touch me or speak to me till I was a little more calm. Then he rang for the servant and told her to bring some lime flower tea. When I had drunk and eaten some of the sweet cake that he urged upon me, I told him about the empty schoolroom.
and of the horror which sat there at the webbed piano. When I had done, he was silent for a while. Then he took both my hands in his. Mademoiselle, he said, I am not going to blame you for the sin of curiosity. I think there was some strange compulsion upon you to act as you did. Therefore, I mean to shed a little light upon this sad schoolroom by telling the story of Mademoiselle Fournier. I started. No, he continued restrainingly. You must listen quietly. And what I tell you, you must never repeat to a soul, save your own mother, until both Mademoiselle Fournier and Mme de Fallon, her cousin, have passed away. I have kept this promise. They have been dead some 14 years. Monsieur Ruiz settled back in his chair. A tiny but comforting fire was lit in the grate, and the light of it was like a ring of guardian angels about us. Mademoiselle Fournier, he began, was a very beautiful and proud young woman. Although she had no dowry, she was yet considered something of a party. And in her 19th year, she became a fiance to a young Russian nobleman who at that time was living for his family upon a estate near Arles. His mother was not too pleased with the match, but she was a good woman, and she treated Charlotte, that is, Mademoiselle Fournier, with kindness. Just before the marriage, Charlotte's father, who had been created a marquis by Bonaparte, and now, by tolerance, held a minor government post under Louis-Philippe, was found to have embezzled many thousands of francs. Her father? I could not help but exclaim. Monsieur Henri smiled wryly. Legend has the lover, the villain, eh? It was Aristide Fournier, a weak man, unable to stomach any recession in his fortunes. Monsieur Fournier shot himself as the gendarmes on their way to take him. Charlotte, her marriage prospects destroyed, came near to lunacy. When she recovered from her long illness, her beauty had gone. The mother of her ex-fiancé, in pity, suggested that a friend of hers, a lady at the court of the Tsar, should employ Charlotte as governess to her children. And in Russia, Charlotte spent nine years. She returned to France to assist her cousin with the school at Belancé that Madame de Vallon had recently established. Why did she return, I said, less because I wished to know the answer than because I wished to break out of the veil of the past he was drawing about us both, and to feel myself a reality once more. Maud Arlette, aged 17 years and nine months, brown hair and grey eyes, five foot seven and a half inches tall. I did not succeed. The veil tightened, grew more opaque. Nobody knows. There were rumours. It seems not improbable that she was dismissed by her employer. Why, I don't know. It's an obscure period in Charlotte's history. He paused to pour out more tea for me. It was thought at first that Charlotte would be of great assistance to Madame de Vallon, teach all subjects and act as Madame's secretary. It transpired, however, that Charlotte was nervous to the point of sickness, and that she would grow less and less capable of teaching young girls. Soon she had no duties in the school, 
set to give lessons in music and deportment. The music room was in the attic, which was then used as a schoolroom also. The pianoforte was Charlotte's own, one of the few things saved from the wreck of her home. Monsieur Rory rose and walked out of the ring of firelight. He stood gazing out of the window, now beaded by a thin rain, and his voice grew out of the dusk as musical waves grows out of the sea. I shall tell you the rest briefly, mademoiselle. It distresses me to tell it to you at all, but I think I can help you in no other way. A young girl came to the school, a child, perhaps 12 or 13 years of age. Her mother and father were in the east, and she was left alone, even during the vacations. Like myself, I cried. Yes, like yourself. And I have an idea that is why she chose you for her confidant. I shuddered. He seemed to guess at my movement, for turning from the window, he returned to the firelight and to me. In one way, however, she was as unlike to you as can possibly be imagined, mademoiselle. She smiled with a faint, sad gallantry. She was exceedingly ugly. From the first, Charlotte took a dislike to her, and it grew to mania. The child, Therese d'Asquier, was never very intelligent. In Charlotte's grip, she became almost imbecile. Charlotte was always devising new punishments, new humiliations. Therese became the shock, mock, and the pity of the school. But Madame de Vallon, couldn't she have stopped it? I interrupted indignantly. My dear, Monsieur Henri replied sadly, like many women of intellect, she is, as you know, a fine teacher. She is blind to most human distress. She is herself a kind woman. She believes others are equally kind. She cannot believe there could be suffering, torment going on beneath her very nose. Has she ever realized your loneliness, mademoiselle, given you any motherly word or? I thought not. But I'm digressing and that I must not do. We have talked too much already. One night, Therese d'Asquier rose quietly, crept from the dormitory, and walked barefooted a mile and a half in the rain across the fields to the river where she drowned herself. Oh, God! I murmured, my heart cold and heavy as stone. God, I think, said Monsieur Roy, cannot have been attentive at that time. His face changed. He added hastily, and God forgive me for judging him. We cannot know, we cannot guess, he continued rapidly in a rather dry, high voice, unlike his own. It was a scandal, a great scandal. Therese's parents returned to France, and everyone expected them to force the truth to light. They turned out to be frivolous and selfish people, who could scarcely even make a parade of grief for a child they had never desired, and whose death they could not regret. Therese was buried and forgotten. Slowly, very slowly, Christiana was also forgotten. After all, nobody knew the truth. They could only make conjecture. 
how did you know? I cried out. Because Madame de Vallon came to me in bitter distress with the tale of the rumours and besought me to clear Charlotte's name. You see, she simply could not believe a word against her. And at the same time, the aunt of Marie, the maid, came to me, swearing she could prove the truth of the accusations. A few days afterwards, she was killed in the fire which destroyed the old quarter of Belancé. I looked my inquiry into his face. I knew which of the women spoke the truth, he replied, answering me because in Madame de Valon's face I saw concern for her own blood. The other woman, I saw concern for a child who to her was nothing. But still, you guessed, I protested. He turned upon me his long and grave regard. You, he said, you do not know the truth? Even you? do not know how I endured the following weeks in that lonely school. I remember how long I lay shivering in my bed, staring into the flame of the candle, because I felt that in the brightest part of it alone was refuge. How the sweat jumped out of my brow at the faintest sound in the stillness of midnight, and how towards morning I would fall into some morose and terrible dream of dark stairways and locked doors. Yet, as day by day, night by night went by with no untoward happening, my spirit knew some degree of easing, and I began once more to find comfort in prayer. That is, I dared once again to cover my face while I repeated our father, and to rise from my knees without fear of what might be standing patiently at my shoulder. The holidays drew to an end. Tomorrow, said Mademoiselle Fournier, holding her needlework in preparation for bed. Your companions will be back with you once more. You'll like that, eh? Ever since my request and her refusal, she had been perfectly normal in her manner. I mean, she had been normally sour, polite, withdrawn. I shall like it, I sighed, only too well. She smiled remotely. I'm not a lively companion for you, Maud. I fear. Still, I am as I am. I'm too old to change myself. She went on upstairs, myself following, our candles smoking in the draught and our shadows pouncing upon the walls. I said my prayers and read for a little while. I was unusually calm, feeling safety so nearly within my reach that I need not be in any hurry to stretch out my hand and grasp it tight. The bed seemed softer than usual, the sheets sweet-smelling delicately warm and light. I fell into a dreamless sleep. I awoke suddenly to find the moon full upon my face. I sat up, dazzled by her light, a strange feeling of energy tingling in my body. What is it? I whispered. And I must too. The moon shone broadly on the great surfaces of gleaming wood, on the bureau, the tall boy, the wardrobe flashed upon the mirror, sparkled on the spiralling bedpost. I slipped out of bed and in my nightgown went out into the passage. It was very bright and still. 
Alone with the stairs fell steeply to the tessellated entrance hall. To my right, the passage narrowed to the door behind which Madame Fogny slept. Her wig upon a candlestick, a book and her spectacles lying on the rug at her side. Zélanie had described her to me. Before me, the stairs rose to the turn of the landing, from which a farther flight led to the second floor, the third floor and the attics. The wall above the stair rail was white with the moon. I felt the terror creeping up beneath my calm. So only as one might feel the shadow of pain while in the grip of a drug. I was waiting now, as I had been instructed to wait, and I knew for what. I stared upwards. My gaze fastened upon the turn of the stairs. Then, upon the moonlit wall, there appeared the shadow of a cone. I stood just out of sight, a fool's cap head nodding forwards, listening, even as I was listening. I held my breath. My forehead was ice cold. She came into view then, stepping carefully, one hand upholding a corner of her skirt, the other feeling its way along the wall. As she reached me, I closed my eyes. I felt her pass by. Knew she had gone along the passage to the door. I heard a door quietly opened and shut. In those last moments of waiting, my fear left me, though I could need neither hand nor foot. My ears were sharp for the least sound. It came. A low and awful cry, tearing through the quiet of the house and blackening the moonlight itself. The door opened again. She came hastening out. And in the shadow of the cap, she smiled. She ran on tiptoe past me up the stairs. The last sound? I thought it had been the death cry of Mademoiselle Fournier, but there was yet another. As Marie and the housekeeper came racing down, white-faced from their rooms, they must have passed as she stood in the shade. I heard very distinctly the piping voice of a young girl. Bien, mademoiselle, je vous remercie beaucoup. We went together, Marie, the housekeeper and I, into the room of Charlotte Fonnier. And only I did not cry out when we looked upon the face. You see, said Monsieur Henri, on the day I left Belancé forever to join my parents in Paris, she did make you her confidant. She gave to you the privilege of telling her story and publishing her revenge. Are you afraid of her now, knowing there was no harm in her for you, knowing that she has gone forever? trouble in no house again. I am not afraid, I said. 
and I believed it was true. But even now I cannot endure to wake suddenly on moonlit night, and I fling my arms around my husband and beg him to rouse up and speak with me until the dawn. The end. Ooh, Tracy Brown. What a brilliant voice. Happy Halloween, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that ghost story for Halloween. Hope you're having a great Halloween. We'll end this podcast, this special, special Happy Halloween podcast. Remember, my Parkinson's community friends, exercise, 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 exercise is the key. And allowing the cordodopa levodopa to absorb properly. And also lately, um, we've been really, in the morning, I give my dad the biggest, like 30 ounces of water in the morning. And that has just done something connected with him he hardly has any tremors in his legs as no wobbly legs so stay hydrated is the thing please subscribe to this podcast my friends up the top of this podcast where you're listening you see a little wi-fi looking rainbow icon and that is where you can subscribe i think my friend tracy brown i will put her handle i believe it's tray at tracy be voice but i will put it in the um in the the notes on this uh, podcast you'll see her handle thanks to my dear friend tracy happy halloween everyone until the next podcast enjoy the music